then in two weeks we're going to kind of do a part two uh, of this, but we're not going to read through like we usually do. Um, we're going to highlight a few sections, a few specific things, and we're actually going to go out of the norm, and we're going to show a little visual picture so that you can kind of see the tabernacle as a, a recreation of it um, based on what we read in the text here in, in a few moments. And, and the reason for that is the tabernacle can be a very tricky thing to understand. Uh, there's a lot of details. One commentator said it this way. He said, uh, the details, it, well, he said it's painfully detailed in this section. Numbers and dimensions and this goes here and faces this direction and all of these things. And we can get lost in some of that and, and lose sight of the overall meaning and the symbolism behind some of those things. So this morning, that's what the goal is meant to be is for you to, when you come to a section like this, that you have an idea in your mind of what it looks like, what it represents, what it is meant to be. And then more importantly, for us now, this side of, of, of Christ's death and resurrection is how can we look back at this and see the goodness of God and see the fulfillment of all that he has said in his Old Testament. So let me just define this for you. This is the, the tabernacle definition. This comes from uh, gotquestions.org, and I notice a few of you in our conversations have used this website. This is an excellent, excellent resource for you. If you have a question, just go to that website, type something in, and they give you really, really solid help. They say this, the tabernacle of Moses was the temporary place of worship that the Israelites built according to God's specifications while wandering the desert, and it was used until King Solomon built a temple. The word tabernacle is a translation of the Hebrew word mishkan, which means dwelling place. Or to maybe say it more simply yet, the tabernacle is the portable or was the portable earthly dwelling place of Yahweh used by the Israelites. But before we look back to it, I want to do something kind of opposite and I want us to look ahead. And so what we're going to do for the next few moments before we even enter the text, before we show the video to give you the visual picture is I want to tell you where this leads to and how we can see it in the New Testament. God's presence literally dwelt among his people in the tabernacle, which you're going to see and we're going to talk about at length. And then in the temple that Solomon built after it. But both of these things were pointing forward to something. They were a partial dwelling of something that was going to occur. And in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then when you flip to verse 14, it says this, The Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt in here has, has great significance. And in fact, in the Greek, uh, it could be translated one of two ways. And we, we use the word dwelt just for the sake of kind of grammar and helping us um, read it. Well, let me just say it this. If we read it this way, which is the Greek, he pitched his tent among us. We might not get that. Until we look back at the tabernacle and we see that. And, and actually, the literal Greek translation is that he tabernacled among us. And so when we look forward to the New Testament, when we read John's writings in the original language and we see that Jesus literally tabernacled among us, it is the explanation that this is the fulfillment of all that the tabernacle symbolized and meant to show us. 
Again, Exodus 25 to 30 might be challenging for us to read. But when we go back in the context and we think about this, this is hugely significant. God would dwell among us. God would tabernacle with them. Remember, they're a a nomadic people at this point. They're living in tents. They don't have a land established for them to call their own. And yet God's saying, I'll be with you every step of the way. I will tabernacle with you. This is a group of people who had been slaves. They worked for another nation against their will. They had no rights. They had no freedoms. They had no protection, and they had no one to fight for them. God was going to be with them. God was going to dwell among his people. That's huge, hugely symbolic. As I mentioned, this tabernacle and and, and then the temple was only a partial fulfillment of what this would happen. Jesus comes and and John tells us he tabernacled among us, so we saw his glory in, in the full, in a sense. And then what about for those of us on this side of the death and resurrection of Christ? Well, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That God's spirit tabernacles in you. He is with you no matter the situation, no matter what you're going through, no matter the challenges. All of what we're going to read and and see visually here is meant to point us to Jesus. And so I start there because I don't want us to just simply look back and think of a history lesson, but I want us to look back and to see that all of this had meaning pointing towards a life that that matters in our day-to-day life details that matter and how we live. And so, Becca, if you can uh, put this up, we're going to show you just a five-minute video. Uh, This is to give you an idea of what we're going to talk about. God dwelled with his people, and its elements show us how to relate with God. After delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, God gave them detailed instructions on how to build this dwelling. Once constructed, the Lord descended on the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. Curtains separated the whole tabernacle from the rest of the Israelite encampment. In this courtyard was the tabernacle's largest piece of furniture, the altar a wooden box covered with bronze. The altar was shaped as a square, measuring approximately seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide. From top to bottom, it stood about four and a half feet. Hollow space inside the box allowed priests to insert coals. Above was a bronze grating where priests would lay animals for sacrifice. A horn of one piece with the altar stood at each corner. Four bronze rings under the ledge allowed one to insert carrying poles so the Israelites could transport the altar. Between the altar and the tent of meeting was a bronze laver. Priests had to cleanse their hands and feet here before offering sacrifices or entering the tent. Within the inner tent stood one of the most recognized elements of the whole tabernacle, the menorah. 
a lampstand with three branches that rose on each side to create a total of seven lamps. This solid gold lampstand weighed about 75 pounds. Each lamp was a small cup that the priest would fill with oil to fuel the light. Each branch in the middle of the shaft had almond blossoms. The menorah served a most practical purpose. It was the only source of light in the tent, an eternal light that was never to go out. Also in the tent stood a wooden table covered with gold. On it was to always remain the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence symbolizes God's desire to be with his people. Incense was to burn continuously on the altar. God instructed the priests to replenish the incense every evening and morning. A curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The menorah, the altar of incense, and the bread of the presence were all in the holy place, but outside this veil. Like the curtains covering the tent of meeting, this veil was blue, purple, and scarlet, with cherubim, a kind of angel. Beyond the veil, at the far end of the tabernacle, was the ark. The ark was a wooden box covered with gold. It was nearly four feet long. Its width and height were about two feet, three inches. Like the altar, the ark had rings and poles so the Israelites could carry it as they traveled. Within the ark were the two stone tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. Later, it contained a sample of manna and the rod that bloomed to reinforce Aaron's leadership. The mercy seat was the ark's lid and features prominently on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. At each end stood a cherub facing the other with its wings outspread. This cover was made of solid gold. The priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on this mercy seat, symbolizing that the nation's sins were covered for another year. While only the high priest would see it, the mercy seat was the key symbol of atonement that God would forgive his people. Though daily sacrifices on the altar were necessary for payment of sin, it was only through the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement that the stain of sin was washed away. While priests had to make repeated sacrifices, one man offered a sacrifice to atone for sin once and for all. When Jesus the Messiah died, he sprinkled his own blood before God securing atonement forever for all who would trust in him. Jesus cleanses us, makes us pure, and enables us to rightly approach the Lord. He tore the veil that kept distance between Israel and the Lord. God dwelled among the Israelites through a tent. Now he dwells within his people through the Spirit. that's a helpful kind of visual picture for you to kind of see it. One thing that stood out, and, and Shayla mentioned this when I showed her the video for the first time, it's a portable tent in the desert, right? And there's just the ground there. It's not ornate in, in a lot of ways. And the temple... Solomon would, would deal with that and give it a permanent home. 
But this was something that as the people would gather together, the tent would be put up and then, and then everything kind of inside it would be put in its place. And then when the smoke, when, which represented God's presence, when it went up, they would pack everything up and they would move on again. And so it was no small undertaking uh, for this. This was, this, was a, this was a big deal for them. Now, just before we read a few verses and highlight some of the, the key things here, I just want to read something from, from Kenneth Harris. In his commentary, he points this out. And there's two kind of main keys to understand everything uh, in these chapters that we're, we're going to see and read. Is first of all, the tabernacle is meant to be seen as a tented place for Israel's divine king. Now, if you remember forward, the Israelites eventually rebel and they say, man, we want our own king just like all the other nations. And God says, well, I, I was meant to be your king. This is, this is the way that God had planned things. They were supposed to see his kingship and, and the service of him as he and he alone was the, or should be the leader of his people. We see this in ways there's the enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant I'll explain this in just a moment, but his royalty is symbolized by the purple of the curtains and the blue, uh, his divinity. The closer you get from the outside to the holy of holies, the more valuable the materials would come, bronze, silver, and gold. All of this was meant to help the people understand that as you were approaching this place, that God's presence was there. This was no ordinary moment, that you were approaching God. The second key to understanding these things is the correlation to the Garden of Eden. And this is something that I've been focusing on more and more in my uh, last couple of years of study. Eden is the ideal. This is the place where man and woman worked or walked with God in perfect harmony, uh, at least for a while. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden. And the garden was representative of the place where God dwelt. And so the tabernacle is this partial restoration of what was lost in Eden, that people could approach him. It was like a mini Eden, if you will. There's symbolism in that, and the, the east-facing entrance guarded by the cherubim is an example of that. The tabernacle ultimately was a step in, towards restoration of paradise. And if you read all the way through scriptures in Revelation 21 and 22, you see the new heavens and the new earth and the tree of life at the center of it all again. And many scholars refer to it kind of in a funny way of calling it Eden 2.0. Is God started by creating the world in a, in, in a perfect way. And mankind wrecks that through sin. And God says, I'm going to ultimately restore everything back to the way it was. But as you read in Revelation, even kind of more grand and big but in that, there's a process to do, and the tabernacle is kind of that first example of that. So I want to read to us uh, a few verses here. There's, there's way too much um, to read all of it, but I'm just going to read a few verses here and there and make some correlations. So the first two verses of chapter 25 says this. So the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they would take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. 
couple things really interesting to note in this. Uh, if you remember back to Exodus 12, you see that when the people left slavery, that they plundered the Egyptians. And that was actually prophesied in the very beginning of Exodus. And we talked about this quite at length, is how strange it would be that God would tell his people, when I bring you up out of slavery, you're actually going to plunder those who have enslaved you. You're going to take things with you. And in chapter 13, I mentioned, or I guess I asked the question, uh, sorry, in chapter 12, I asked the question, why would they take all these uh, gold and silver and jewelry and fine clothing, why would they take these things out to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Well, here's why. Is God had a plan. He was going to create for them the tabernacle. He was going to show Moses how it was to be built and, and how were they going to have the, the necessary things to accomplish that? Well, God made sure that they would have it. But the second thing to notice here in this verse is God isn't after kind of some kind of discontented obedience. He says, take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. God is after our hearts, not just ritualistic obedience. And sometimes we look back at tabernacle or temple or the sacrificial system and we go, man, it, just, it was just a lot of rituals. But all those rituals were not rituals for ritual's sake. They all pointed towards something. And we could say the same thing in, in today's world. So let me say it this boldly now is that you could ha- sit down with your non-Christian friends and they could ask, well, why do you go to church? And you could say, well, I have to. It's something that I just have to do to prove to God that I'm worthy of going to heaven. And if you said that, you would be very misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches. Or you could say, you know what, I choose to go not out of discontented obedience to some kind of, well, as long as I go, God will lay off my back. He won't, he won't do bad things to me and, and th- good things will happen. Or you could go, man, I want to be in the presence of God's people. I want to worship together where we see and understand what scripture is, where we study together. Jesus dealt with this with the, in the Gospels with the Pharisees so much where he would say things like, your hearts are still far from me. You do all these things, all these rituals, all the things that are prescribed in the Pentateuch, in in the first five books of the Bible, you do them religiously, but your heart is completely disconnected from what you're doing. And there's no difference now between us going to church is we can have that same attitude. We can drag ourselves to church and go, I don't want to be here, but I think I need to be here. Or we can choose to go, Actually, this is probably the best thing that I could do for the next hour. And I don't mean that any sense because somehow you're going to hear some great wisdom from me is I very rarely give you any of my thoughts because they're not very good. We study what Scripture teaches us, the things that God has already said to us. And when we come together to do that, when we do it with proper heart, with proper obedience, we're doing the same thing that these two verses say here. What is your contribution that you can give? Well, we're going to talk about this in August when we get to a little mini-series on stewardship. Is what has God called you to do and to be and to give for his kingdom? And we're going to look at a couple of different areas. We're going to look at our spiritual gifts first because God has given you a unique gift that you would use not for your benefit, but for the benefit of those in your community, for the benefit of your church family for the benefit of others outside of the church family seeing and asking, why would you 
Why would you serve so much? And we can point to Jesus. For our time, we're going to talk a lot about that, is, is the time that we've been given. And I think sometimes we get too focused on the fact, thinking that, man, we're, we're too busy. We're only too busy because we don't say no to things. We're only too busy because we choose to make ourselves too busy. Sometimes we need to say no to things, not because they are bad in and of themselves, but so we can say yes to better things. And then thirdly, we're going to look at our material resources. And that's the implication here, or not the implication, it's, it's explicit here, is that people would bring an offering to God so that they would see and understand what God is about, what God is doing, and what the tabernacle is meant to be. Ultimately, the, the tabernacle signifies this, is that God alone is worthy of praise, and God has invited his people and us into partnership with him. But first, he wants to make sure that our hearts are right. So what we're going to do is we're going to start, we're going to look at the ark and the three pieces of furniture that are in the holy place, and the next time we're going to deal with the other aspects of it. And there'll be some pictures from that video up uh, behind me so that you can kind of get this visual of what's going on. But let's read uh, verses 10 to 16 here of chapter 25, just so that we have a framework of, of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, God says this, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside, and outside shall you overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall, sorry, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the ark into the testament, sorry, the ark shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Obviously, you can kind of see in the pictures and, and from reading this that it was a very ornate, it was a very fancy uh, built thing, but it had deep, deep symbolism. Within the ark were the Ten Commandments, and, and again, we talked about this last time, uh, but when Moses comes down from the mountain the second time, uh, God gives him the Ten Commandments and he puts them into there. And then later on, a jar of manna is put in an Aaron's budded staff. The ark was to only be carried with these poles. They were the transportation for the ark, and they were not to be taken from it. And that might seem like a strange and obscure detail, but if you continue reading uh, through the Old Testament and you get to 2 Samuel, you'll find this story of a guy named Uzzah. And the ark is not being transported the way that God had said. And in fact, I, th I don't think he could have said it much more clear clearly than in verse 15. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. It's very clear. But they put it on a new cart and it's being pulled by an oxen. And the, ox, the oxen stumbles and Uzzah reaches out to kind of stabilize the ark. And in that moment, he's struck down dead. And if you're reading this without the context of, of what we've just read here, you kind of look at this and go, man, why would that happen? Why would guys strike this guy down? Wasn't he trying to do a good thing by stabilizing the ark and saving it? 
And see, this goes back to the point of what we just said is that God's not after ritualistic obedience. He's after our hearts. God gets to determine how and why we do things, not because, not because he's trying to limit our fun or our freedom, but because he's trying to show us this, this is the correct, this is the right, this is the best. If you live in the context with the rules which with God has given you, you will honor him and you will honor each other. But we want to redetermine all those things. And we talked about this again last week. Is we want to take some of those things and say, well, well, God said this, but really that's not really what he meant. Uh, partly that, but we're going to change it to a, appeal more to our current culture. Rather than going, no, what God has said is true. God isn't after partial obedience. God said, here's the way I want you to carry the ark. And it isn't as though God's just going, man, when you screw up, I'm going to kill you. And you can, you can read it and think that way. Or you can read it and go, God's saying, look, here's how I want you to live. Here's, I want you to take me at my word that what I say matters. Do we have a view that God is holy? I'm, I'm going to say this again, but at the end of, of this whole tabernacle section, is all of it points toward the fact that God alone is worthy of honor and praise and that the tabernacle exists to show us that as we get closer and closer to God that we take seriously the steps that we're making. I think in today's world, we could learn a lot from these verses. How often do we approach God with some really trivial attitude? Or we kind of think of it like, well, well, Jesus, you're, 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 you're just my friend. You're just, you're just one of the guys. Well, that's not what Scripture teaches. Yes, it uses the word friend because he's trying to show an intimate relationship with us. But God is so much more than that. The mercy seat in verses 17 to 22, uh, or, or you could think of it as the cover. Uh, I remember thinking as, as a kid and when I got to Bible college, reading this mercy seat, like thinking that the priest actually kind of like sat in it. And so you kind of have to, take that imagery away. Maybe you're smarter than me and you never thought that. Uh, But the cover uh, goes over top and it was meant to represent God's throne here in the Holy of Holies, that only the high priest would actually be there and only once a year would he see this. But he would make an offering, a sacrifice for sins that was talked about in the video and that we're going to talk about next time because we're going to deal with atonement more specifically and what it all meant to be. But this holy of the holies, this was God's throne room. This was, this was not a dwelling place where we all just casually gathered together. Only one person, only the high priest, only once a year would come in and offer sacrifice in that moment. This was very, very serious. Then we read about the table uh, of the bread. Sometimes it's translated bread of presence or show bread. And there's two stacks of six loaves. Anybody want to guess what the 12 loaves represent? 12 tribes of Israel. And we talked about this last week is when the, when the leaders of Israel go up to the mountain and, and they kind of, how it's written is kind of that they see God up kind of on this, on this footstool and that they recognize that they're in God's presence is that's what this is meant to represent, a meal shared together. Sometimes people will look at this and go, well, every week it was, the bread was put in and then it was taken out, but God didn't eat it. Well, of course God didn't eat it. God doesn't need to eat it. It's not about feeding God. 
It's about symbolism of the 12 tribes of Israel at a fellowship meal with God saying, here, we are with you. This is, this is your relational impact on us that we are with you. This is the first piece of furniture in the holy place. The second piece is the golden lampstand. Uh, and in the pictures here, you kind of see this, but what's not written explicitly uh, would have been understood implicitly by the people here. The lampstand was modeled on a flowering almond tree, which was, repre- which was to represent what? The tree of life in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life was meant, when you look at this, you were meant to see this is a flowering almond tree. This, this is going back to the garden, at least in symbol, to show that as the priests poured oil in that and the flame never went out, that God's presence would never be taken away from his people. He would be there always. But then again, let's look forward to the New Testament. Jesus uses two imageries that mirror the bread and the, and the menorah. Can you think of what they are? In John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now again, these are things that that we read and we can understand some of the imagery, but the Jewish people would have understood the symbolism far more than we ever can. Especially the people that Jesus was speaking to in that day. When he says, I am the bread of life, they would have recognized that this bread that existed in covenant relationship with God in the tabernacle, which was holy, is now Jesus has come and dwelt among us, and, and he is the bread. That he is the light, that he dwells with us, and that Jesus was making very clear to the Jewish people, he's saying this, I am the fulfillment of those things. In chapter 26, we read about how the, the curtains are to be built, separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place. For the sake of time, we're, we're not going to talk about the details in this chapter except for this. We're going to read verses 31 to 35 because I want to make a, an observation here. This is the 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And we already talked about that represents the royalty and divinity of God. And fo- of fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. You shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. The veil shall separate you from the holy place. Sorry, separate you, the holy place, from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat of the ark and the testimony in the most holy place and you shall set the table outside the veil the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. Now again, going back to this idea of the imagery of Eden, is the cherubim on the curtain oversees the most, the, the most holy place. Can you remember what happens after Adam and Eve sin and they're cast out of the garden? God puts a cherubim to guard the entrance of the Garden of Eden. Why does he do it? Do you remember? I think sometimes our assumption is to keep us out uh, in like an aggressive, like you're not worthy of coming back in here, get out. And, and while that maybe has some truth to it, 
What the text actually says in Genesis, it's to protect us so that we would not walk back in and eat of the tree of life and live in our sinless state for forever. It's actually God's mercy. He says you can't go back in there because if you go back in there and you eat of the tree of life, it's all ruined for forever. And so what we see sometimes as discipline and and discipline that seems negative, God's going, this is actually for your benefit and for your good. Because I'm going to restore things to that, but you can't do that on your terms. I'm going to do that on my terms. Just think, parents, real quick. Have you ever had that happen with your children? Where they think they know better than you. Well, you shouldn't discipline me this way. You should just give me what I want. And you as the parent know that if I give you what I want, it's going to be all kinds of negative. God in his wisdom knows the same. And so he's not, he's not putting the curtain there in the chair room going, you stay out of the most holy of holies or I'm going to kill you, though that is implied. It's because you're not able to come into there. And so I'm putting this as a sign of mercy so that you would stop and that you would not enter into there. Because as of yet in your sinful state, you, you can't approach and be in the presence of God. God's saying, we're going to deal with this. We're going to have sacrifice. We're going to have the day of atonement. All these things which are going to point ultimately towards Jesus so that things work in their proper way. All of this is meant to be about God's mercy. For the last piece of furniture, we need to skip ahead to chapter 30 so you can flip a couple of pages here. And in the first six verses of chapter 30, there's a lot of details uh, for what exactly Aaron's going to do. But in verses 7 to 10, it says this. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it. Well, that's going to happen later on again. The same as with the ark being transported incorrectly. And so another big consequence is going to happen. Here's why. He's saying you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. In verses 34 to 38, he, God explains the exact type of incense that was to be made. And there was the understanding that that type of incense would never be made elsewhere. You were not going to take that formula that you, that you uh, wrote down for this, and you were not going to use that in your home, because your home and God's holy place were two different things. Sure, you could burn incense in your home, and r- people regularly did. You could... You could burn it in different places in different ways, but even here, God says this is the only way because this, this is holy. It reminds us back to when Moses first encountered God and he walks up to the burning bush and God says what? Take off your shoes where you're standing is holy ground. And again, that might seem foreign to us. You go, what difference does it make if you're barefoot or wearing shoes and We can kind of argue all those things or we can see the symbolism there of God going, I'm completely holy here and and how I say and what I say to you, I want you to obey. And when you're obedient to me and when your heart is in the right place, I'm going to actually let you enter into my presence. I'm going to be with you. God is not a God who is distant. He's a God who is with us, but he's with us on his terms because we already 
sinned in the Garden of Eden, we tried to do it on our terms. The symbolism here of the incense um, is really interesting. One commentator I read from, well, many, but one specifically that I read from said it this way, is that it could be seen as a symbol of our prayers of, of the people of God. That as we pray, our incense rises to God in smoke and ascends into the, out of the sanctuary into his presence. And so if you think about it in that way, your prayers are being brought up to God as a fragrant, beautiful offering. But let me ask you this, is how many of your prayers are a beautiful offering and how many of your prayers are selfish, asking God for things you don't need? Now I'm looking at myself more than I'm looking at you here. I think sometimes, again, we view prayer, and so this is July. We're going to study through prayer in July. Because I think sometimes our prayers are very trivial. Sometimes our prayers are, are this sense of, I don't understand to whom I'm about to make plea to. In Revelation chapter 4, we see the throne room of God. And John writes it out for us in this way that, that he is, as he is about to experience God's presence, that he falls on his face in humility because he recognizes, I should not even be here. See, the whole tabernacle, temple, everything, it's all meant to point towards this fact that we, have, we should have no arrogance before God. When we step inside in the ways that he has prescribed with the details that he has given us, it's because he is worthy of our obedience. When we step to that next level, we're understanding and seeing the beauty of God, the holiness of God. And if the holiness of God doesn't cause us to reflect on ourselves and see our own sin, then we're kind of missing out. Isaiah would say it this way is, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Do we have that view or do we think I'm pretty good and I deserve to be in the presence of God? Maybe we wouldn't say it that boldly, but do we live that way? In Isaiah 1, God cries out to his people this way. He says, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. The incense was always rising. The priests were always there doing their duty, but their hearts were not with God. They were just doing it again out of religious tradition. And God says, you're missing the point. Don't do it if you don't understand what you're doing. It makes no difference then. And you might think again, okay, this is Old Testament. Well, in 1 Peter, we read that if a husband does not serve and love and care for his wife the way he is called to, then his prayers won't be heard before God. Not in a physical sense of God won't actually hear your prayers, but he's not going to honor your prayers. Why? Because he's given you a role. You were to accomplish this and do it to the glory of God. And if you're not doing it and then yet asking God for things, what are you doing? Put your heart right with God first. All of these things, the, the three pieces of furniture in the holy place, the ark in the most holy place, all of it is meant to get the people to reflect inward on their own sinfulness so that they can see the goodness and the mercy of God. Again, I've said this many times, but Tozer kind of always talks about God's holiness this way, and, and he ends up by saying, the bad news is way worse than you could ever imagine. But the good news is way better than you could imagine. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins 
his death and his resurrection is not just some trivial thing that we should come to and, and sing about and talk about in, in, without dealing with our own hearts and recognizing, God, save your mercy. I deserve nothing. I don't deserve to approach you. I don't deserve to sing praises to you. As Isaiah says, we should say the same as, woe is me, I'm, I'm a person of unclean lips. Not so that we don't approach God, but so that we approach God rightly. With humility. And I'm convinced, if we approached God with humility, we would have a lot less problems with what Scripture says. Because we would say, God, you get to choose these things because you know what's best. Adam and Eve in the garden looked at it and said, I think God's holding out on us. I don't think what he said is true. And so we're going to eat of this. The consequences were devastating. And God brings all of this as his plan to show us ultimately what salvation is going to be. Well, we're now on this side of the cross and we know that Jesus died and rose again and and we know that his spirit has been given to those who have confessed faith in Jesus Christ. But I think we can learn a lot from the tabernacle. I think we can learn how to relate to God not out of religious obligation or duty, but out of a grateful heart to recognize that there is a holy God who I don't deserve to approach, but yet he according to John, came and made his dwelling among us. He did what I could not. If you remember when Jesus goes to get baptized by John the Baptist, what is John's first response? I'm not worthy. You should be the one baptizing me. That should be our response when we we come into the presence of God. I don't deserve anything that you're about to give me, and yet you're a good God who wants to give me good gifts. And so I put my arrogance aside and how I think, uh, what, what I think should happen and how I think it should happen, I put it aside and I come to you and I say, God, I don't understand all of your ways, but I submit to them because you alone are good. That should be our response. When we read about the tabernacle later, when we read about the temple, when we see all the symbolism and all these things... It's not unrelated, irrelevant things that existed for an ancient people. There's principles in there for us to draw out of and to see and to understand. There is a holy God who loves me and he has made a way for me to be with him when I could not. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you know better than we do. Thank you that you had plan in dealing with sin, ultimately with Jesus dying on the cross and rising again to conquer death. But you just didn't bring that about right away in the first few pages of the Bible. But that you planned for us to see step by step by step your plan of salvation. Because your goal wasn't only just to save us, it was to be in relationship with us the way you intended in the beginning. And so, God, when we read through sections that feel like maybe there's painfully too many details, or where we can read it and think, what significance does this have in my life now? May we always read these things understanding that you are giving us just a little bit more of 
picture of who you are so that we might know how to relate to you. And so, God, this morning we have come and we have, sing pra- we have sung praises to your name because you alone are holy, but I pray that we do that with hearts that are right before you. May we not walk into church because, well, I guess I should go because it's Sunday, but may we walk in with an excitement to say, I'm here to worship with the saints. I'm here to bring glory and honor to your name. We're here because we believe that studying the word of God is the best thing we can do with our time. We're here because we believe we need each other to accomplish the purposes that you have called us to. May we learn from these things and may we not be people that have some kind of a discontented obedience. Some kind of ritualistic obedience, but our hearts are not in it. May we have hearts that are focused and dedicated towards you. As we're going to read in the coming weeks, as we're going to understand atonement, sacrifice, we thank you that Jesus came and offered himself as the one sacrifice for all. That our sin is forgiven and that you have called us into relationship with you. And while the details of that look different than the tabernacle in practice, the principles are still the same. And so God, may we honor you in our lives with how we live and how we talk because you alone are worthy of that honor. God, go with us in these coming days now. We love you. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you're visiting, there's no, there's no need to get out of here. Just through the curtain here around.